thanks so much for joining us on Speaking of Making Healthcare Work for You. I'm Stephanie Fields. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and our guest today, James Dold, who is on the leadership and development team of Mindula, and he is a behavioral health specialist. So thank you both for being here and joining me today. Pleased to be here. Thank you, Stephanie. So James is going to talk to us about behavioral health and all of the impacts that COVID is having on it, and then just the greater picture of behavioral health in the U.S. So James, why don't you tell us why is this important to you? Where did your interest in this start and why does it matter? Why is this so important? Yeah, so I'm a behavioral health nurse by training. Uh, I've been in healthcare for God, 30 years. Dr. Gupta and I met probably 15 or 16 years ago here in Boston uh, with NEQA. Um, but out of nursing school, I went in nursing school as a paramedic, you know, got into uh, trucks with other big guys and you know, got a lot of behavioral health calls to get patients managed into the ED for evaluations and really found a passion for talking patients off of ledges, quite frankly, uh, and out of doing foolhardy things uh, to get them into a safer environment. Uh, that kind of lit my fire around behavioral health and the opportunity for me to impact patients. Um, if you talk to my father, who's been gone quite a few years now, he'll tell you that I was made for it because I grew up in a crazy household, <laughs> right? We're all kind of crazy, but, you know, truth be told, it was my passion. I fell into it and I just fell in love with it. Uh, the ability to walk into a room at six foot one, 295 and talk people out of doing crazy stuff and talk them into a better place was a lot of fun and I got a lot of enjoyment out of it. Uh, and through my experiences, I've been able to, you know, grow and develop and leverage my psych background into the behavioral health space and then into, you know, primary care and other aspects of, uh, of the medical continuum. That's awesome. And I love your personal connection to that because that's so great. And like when you said you literally can talk people off of ledges and being a big guy, you have that ability to really help people when they're having a physical struggle, which is amazing. And then I love that you're so interested in getting into their mind and figuring out what's really triggering that because it's not just, you know, some random thing. There is an underlying issue. But before we started the interview, we were talking and you said that there's a huge crisis in the ability for people to actually get help even when they need it. So tell there us about how big is this problem? There is. If you think about it in the work we're doing today around trying to figure out how to scale behavioral health needs into the community, you know, if you think about the behavioral health network, psychiatry in particular, Nationally, about 26% of psychiatrists in the national footprint are accepting new patients. And if you think about that number, you're waiting up to 14 weeks for that appointment to take place. So if we do the math on that quickly, if you are having a very, very difficult life crisis and need an acute bed someplace or to talk to somebody urgently, where are you gonna go? What are you gonna do? You can't, you can't solve for that overnight. Um, if you do those numbers out even a little further, 36% of patients with a behavioral health need actually receive care, which means there's a gigantic delta out there of patients who just don't either want to address it or don't know how to address it. Um, and of that 36%, only 12% are receiving care from actually a psychiatrist or somebody with, with psychiatric training per se. So it really highlights the depth of the need. You know, and if you think about the broad spectrum of just the Medicare Advantage population at large, 28 to 44% of those patients in the Medicare Advantage space, over 65, have behavioral health needs that are, that are not being met or being underserved. So the needs are real uh, and they're significant and they're getting worse by the day. I was just gonna ask, is that a situation that it is getting worse or is it that we're more aware of it and we're trying to treat it better? And then why, 
why are only 26% of psychiatrists accepting new patients? Is it because they're booked to the max? It's actually, so it depends on who you talk to. Um, I was speaking with a, a large national payer here in the Boston market a few weeks ago, and they're saying the majority of their psychiatric physicians in their network are in private practice doing private pay, and they can't get them to engage across some of these continuum, these continuous improvement programs in the community like collaborative care. They can't get them to think differently about how to approach psychiatry and how to spread that into the, into the marketplace. Now, I don't think that the needs of behavioral health have necessarily spun out of control. I think the need for behavioral health has been rather consistent throughout you know, our lifespan. I think what's happening today is there's a better focus on it, right? We see a lot of engagement around celebrities and, and sports figures who are doing a great job publicly of acknowledging the challenges and the struggles of both things like depression and, and bipolar disorder and others. Um, that highlights the problem and, and actually encourages people to seek treatment. That's driving some of the challenges we have around access. The other issue I think we have is, you know, I hate the word unprecedented times. It actually makes me cringe because everybody says that. Um, but you have really the, the perfect storm of issues taking place with the election craziness that's been taking place over the last really three years. COVID now taking place, going on almost a year at this point. The next month will be a year. People don't know what to do. Everywhere they look, there's something else that's causing them anxiety. So you have this whole cohort of patients who, I call them the walking wounded, right? They were the, the walking well. They had depression, anxiety that was manageable on their own. You throw into these other events into the life they have no control over, and they really begin to spin out of control. And then they don't know where to go to get the help they need because they can't wait 14 weeks for medication. And unfortunately, most primary care doctors, and again, grain of salt, I say most, uh, they're not necessarily comfortable prescribing um, psychiatric medications for good reason, right? And that's not necessarily in their wheelhouse. Um, and there's a lot of additional responsibility that comes from those diagnoses. Um, and if there's no access in the marketplace, they're holding the bag and responsible for the mental health and well-being of that patient when they're really trained as an internist and, and focus on, on the entire body and not in the mind necessarily. Yeah, so, so James, it's interesting. I, um, one thing you said, I wonder if you can clarify. Uh, in general, it feels like we're hearing about behavioral health, mental health issues everywhere at uh, school-age kids, college-age kids, uh, in, in every aspect of society. So is that just really more increased awareness, or is there something happening that's actually increasing the sense of anxiety, fear, isolation? Uh, you know, Because from your pr prior comments, I got a sense that maybe you think it's a little bit of... Uh, just, just more exposure, but I'm wondering, is something growing within our society as well that's causing more of these issues? Yeah, you know, I think it's, I think it's both, right? I think, I think if I look back to my college years, there was certainly a lot of angst and 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 uncertainty in in the environment that we were going through. But you always knew at the end of your college years, you were going to find a job and, and move on, mm -hmm. right? I think if we think about the youth of today, and I think my 14 year old down the hall, homeschooling, wanting to get into robotics and taking Mandarin and working seven days a week to compete at MIT because he's not, you know, in that genre of kids who can get in there very easily. Very stressful. He knows what his grades are day to day. Hour mm -hmm. by hour, he can tell you what his grades are. He falls below an A minus, he starts to freak out. So I think, you know, if I go back to my school days, grades came out four times a year. You hoped it was a decent grade set so your folks didn't get aggravated with you. <laughs> but now if he wants to compete on the world stage, he knows day to day that he's, you know, looking at MIT is where he wants to land. He may not get in if his grades aren't, you know, A's across the board and he can speak Mandarin and has his, you know, Eagle Scout and all these other things. 
Mm-hmm. So I think the stressors are, are more real for the kids today because of the immediacy of our environment. I think the internet's a fantastic thing, but it's also adding a lot of stress to our children. Yeah, such a good point. Such a good point. So, and it strikes me then that obviously psychiatrists alone are not going to be able to solve this, right? So obviously there's a huge shortage of psychiatrists, but you're going to need a lot more solutions and many other kinds of providers and probably changes at the societal level uh, in order to really address this. Yeah, I would, I, absolutely, right? You can't fix this with one answer. You just can't add a bunch of psychiatrists and solve the problem, mm-hmm. right? It's a systemic issue. And we're boarding emergency, in the emergency department psych patients because there are no beds there's no access, right? You can't fix the access by adding more beds because you need more staff to manage it that are trained. So there's really a cart before the horse, the chicken before the egg, you know, pick your, your crazy story there. The problem is really systemic. We have to really have a multifaceted approach to solving this problem. A lot of the work that I'm engaged in and having conversations all over the country is trying to figure out how to leverage, you know, new things like this collaborative care model and, and community-based behavioral health approaches where we can spread psychiatry, which is very thin across a broad spectrum of the marketplace. Hmm. How do we reinforce our primary care providers and give them a backstop to feel more comfortable prescribing, you know, antipsychotic and and psychiatric medications for the population at large. Could you break that down, James? Because what you just said is what you and I have been discussing and it's so powerful. Uh, But at the same time, we're thinking about doing that in the context of health systems and consulting. Could you help explain that collaborative care model to the layperson? What is it exactly and how would it benefit them? Sure. So so let's make it really simple. Let's say, let's take me, James Dole. I go to see my primary care physician and he recognizes that I am more stressed than usual when I go to see him based on my blood pressure or whatever else and just through our conversation. He can make a recommendation to me and say, hey, you know what? I think if you're open to it, I'd like you to talk to a, a behavioral health specialist, not a psychiatrist, not a therapist, just a behavioral specialist. I want you to take this assessment. We do this assessment and see what it tells us. Sit down, talk with a, a behavioral health nurse practitioner, goes through my history, asks me a bunch of questions, takes about 60 minutes or so. Through that assessment, make recommendations back to the primary care around medications, around treatment modalities, around potential therapists, all done under the umbrella of a consulting psychiatrist. BCP says, you know what? I think it's great. I think you could really use the help. I might be stressing about a job change. I might be stressing about how to manage my kids at home and and work full time and help them manage school, life stressors, COVID, take your pick. And it could be that talking to a behavioral health specialist a social worker a couple of times a week might help offload some of that anxiety, some of that stress, Hmm. along with an antidepressant or an anti-anxiolytic to just take that edge off and make me more open to discussions and conversations and think about things a little more clearly, right? Could stay in that collaborative care model two months, six months, eight months. Beyond that, that episode, if things go back to normal, I can go back into my normal daily routine. Thank you for the help and, and continue on. The great news is that through testing done through an app, through the telephone, right? Everybody's got a smartphone today. I can take ongoing assessments in my free time. And if my care team sees a change in my status through these online tests and evaluations I take, they just pick up the phone, dial me back in and say, hey, how are you doing? We saw that your test went up four points last week. Everything okay? Should we you know, have another conversation and talk about some of those things that were bugging you before? So a real true capacity to dial up and dial down the level of engagement based on very simple tests that are done over the phone through smartphone technology. Stephanie, how does that strike you? Obviously a psychiatrist can prescribe 
pill uh, medications because they are medically trained doctors. And then in the collaborative care model, you mentioned people working underneath the umbrella of a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. So what is the role of somebody that people might be more familiar with in their daily life, like a, a therapist that they'd see or a psychologist? How mm -hmm. do those people factor in? It's really based on the level of need, right? So not everybody needs a therapist. Not everybody needs a psychologist. You know, psychologists and therapists are extremely important in the process and, and the ability to get into a room and talk in a free, safe environment about the issues of the day are incredibly impactful to everybody who does it. But not everybody needs a level of engagement, right? It could be that talking through a behaviorally health trained social worker, a licensed social worker, could get you the blocking and tackling the community-based assets and resources you need to overcome those, those very episodic challenges you're facing. Certainly for the population who needs a therapist and it needs that talk therapy, it needs a safe environment to bounce ideas off of and get different framing around the life events they've got going on. A therapist, uh, psychologists are absolutely in the mix in this, in this model, but only if it's clinically indicated. And that's another way we can actually insulate the overutilization of the network and really make sure that we're assigning the right level of care to the right patient at the right time. You know, thinking of MTV, you know, um, Dr. Drew at the reunion specials often says, you know, or things like everybody could use therapy or everybody can benefit from therapy. Yeah. So were you saying that maybe that's not the case and that people shouldn't be doing that because they're overutilizing the system and taking away from the true need cases? So, so let me be very clear. Everybody could use therapy. But not everybody needs therapy from a, a therapist or a social, you know, a psychologist. Mm -hmm. You know, licensed social workers do a type of therapy as well. You know, they're able to help talk through and provide solution sets at a different level, right? We're really making an effort to dial in the right level of engagement for the right type of problem patients are having, mm -hmm. right? It's like you're going to go, you don't have to go to the emergency room for every problem you have. That's why we've had Minute Clinics and Walgreens spin up these, these walk-in retail centers that magically treat appropriately, 96% of the patients who show up are appropriately self-diagnosed and come into those locations, right? That was a help to our EDs in terms of offloading some of the burden that they had from, from an urgent perspective. Mm -hmm. So is that the same type of model that we should be using in behavioral and mental health, that same type of education and awareness to help people get to the right place and use the tools that you mentioned? Absolutely, right? And there's a lot of great work happening right now. Uh, and, and some of the things we're hoping the Biden administration will do is do things like, you know, investing in, in public media campaigns around how to leverage and what to leverage in the behavioral health continuum and how to access services, right? So that we can, A, be good stewards of the healthcare system, right? We got to remember that we waste a trillion dollars every year of healthcare spend. Patients who have an underdiagnosed or undermanaged behavioral health need with chronic conditions, comorbidities, we call it, like diabetes, hypertension, heart failure, these things, you know, all of our elders tend to kind of walk into, they spend almost 300% more on those chronic conditions if they have an undermanaged behavioral health need underneath, right? Because they just, they're overwhelmed with their depression or their anxiety. We'll use those two as our kind of speaking points. So it prevents them from seeking care timely. It prevents them from being medication adherent um, and taking the meds as prescribed by a physician, not even taking into account that there's potentially some funding challenges there that might preclude them from taking meds appropriately as well. These days, we hear a lot about healthcare coaches, 
who are not specifically trained psychiatrically, do you think that they have a role in this uh, uh, system? They do have a role, right? I think everybody has a role. I think it really depends on the proper stratification. And what I mean by that is we really truly understand the need of the population, right? Because some of the needs patients have could be very well managed by a health coach. You know, somebody who is who's not, not trained, but not trained to the same level as a social worker or a therapist or a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of it as kind of a, a, a medical assistant in an office practice setting, right? Somebody who comes in as the first line of defense, does some basic questioning, does a, a, a PHQ-9, a, a psychology test and get some results and make sure that they're on the right path. Um, there's definitely a place for coaches. I think a lot of that coaching responsibility, we're seeing pivot to online tools um, that allows us to query the data at scale and actually evaluate responses over time um, in, a, in a neutral environment, letting the data speak to us around who needs more services and when. I actually did the survey on the MindDola website. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. assessment, and it was really cool. I, I haven't got you as a referral yet, so you must yes. be fine. <laughs> I did. I actually scored very low, so I will be sure to let my husband know because he probably has some other thoughts. You didn't take the option to let him test for you? No, no, I didn't. No, he, he might score me higher. But no, it was really cool. And I like that those things that was so available and open on the website that you just go there. And it, I think things like that are so important because if somebody is struggling, that could be a first step that they take without having to tell anybody. It just gives them a, a, an easy, free access. And then maybe, you know, if it would have been a high score, I would have been like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. you know, now what? Now maybe I do need to see somebody else. Maybe I need to talk to somebody about this. Yeah, here's the good news. If, if you're actually in the MindDoula system through one of our contracts and that score comes back and pops high, you're in the queue, right? You'll be receiving an outbound phone call from somebody who's paying attention to the data on the back end to make sure that you are actively being engaged and we're not overlooking that opportunity, right? As, they, as you know, we say in the healthcare inpatient side of the equation, EMRs are fantastic, but it's really garbage in and garbage out. You got to make sure you're doing good things with the data you get in there mm-hmm. um, because it, it, it can't be for naught. And that gets us to the screening piece, right? The other thing we should be looking to the Biden administration to do is, is really increase screening across the board, right? And it's not just, you know, we hear about screening for COVID, which is incredibly important. And we see the numbers tell us the great story about them coming down over the last month by 100,000 cases. But what if we tied that screening component of your COVID test to the test you took on the MindDuel website? Think about that at scale. Think about us over the next 12, not even 12 months, next 10 months, screening all 300 million Americans around behavioral health needs and then doing something with it. This is really intriguing what you're proposing. So you do a COVID uh, screening and you do a behavioral health screening and they must be connected, right? Are there people that are more likely to score high on a behavioral health screen also likely to have some challenges on the COVID side? So just me speaking without you know looking at the data, but I'm gonna just go on the straight, straight data that's out there today that 45 to 50% of the population has an underdiagnosed behavioral health need, right? Add to that list, the patients with chronic conditions like diabetes, hypertension, heart failure. You combine those two and you're reaching a very, very solid 60% of the population who is gonna have a need that we could help with, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's that those chronic conditions, you know, if you're struggling with your management of diabetes because you're in the house and can't get to the right food or the right appointments or the right type of exercise, 
You can't get to your heart failure specialist. You're stressing out eating the wrong food. It's all of these things are intertwined, right? And we can't address one without addressing the other. So it's really a global approach is I think the only way we can move forward. I like that idea of having something that you're doing anyway with the COVID tests or the COVID vaccine rather, and then getting the behavioral health screening at the same time, because it's not something that requires an additional step. It's not something that requires additional money on the behalf of the payer, because any of those barriers that you can remove, the better. But I do wonder about people um, who might be resistant to this. You know, there are people who say, who don't trust the vaccine, and then you add a behavioral health screening. Is that going to be something that then they're going to think, you know, is really overtaking them? How do you come at it from an approach of um, genuine love and care so that they understand and they're not suspicious of the motive behind it? That is the million dollar question, right? And I think that as you've seen, the testing and the evaluation is quite easy. It's quite simple. It's, it's very non-threatening. And I think that's the key piece of the equation, right? We can't come at this and say, we think you have a behavioral health need. It's really, we understand these are stressful times. And our recommendation to everybody who's taking the COVID vaccine is that you take this additional screening tool and allow us to make sure that there isn't anything else going that we should be helping you with as you move beyond COVID into the phase, next phase of this lifespan, right? Which is post COVID, but it's also stressful. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the economy's not gonna spin back. I heard numbers today for another four years, the level of employment we had prior to COVID hitting, right? So just because the vaccine's out and, you know, knock on wood here, we, everybody who is open to getting it and can get it by midsummer, let's say, that's great. We've got some herd immunity moving on us and, and we're beginning to rebuild the economy, but we're still four years away from where we were just a year ago from an environment perspective. You were talking about how everybody really can play a role in the behavioral health of the population. How do employers through things like EAPs or um, you know, perhaps integrations with things like MindDoula play or even in schools with the counselors, what role and how important are they in this collaborative care network? Critical, right? I think the more touch points we have to demystify the access, the better. Right. If you're hearing about it from an employer as an EAP benefit, because it's it doesn't cost anything typically, right? The screening tool is free, right? It's a free licensed opportunity, right? Working with national payers to get out in front of people, EAPs to get in front of people, I think is a great step. I think you touch on a great opportunity with the, our school districts, right? My kids are online. Oh my God, way more than they should be, right? I'm frightened every day to look and review their screen time with them about what they've been doing on their devices, right? What if every day part of the school curriculum was we have them take a mental health assessment as part of homeroom. And we're evaluating that on a weekly basis. And we're evaluating the entire population of a town on their behavioral health needs in a very, very low stress and low threat environment. And we're, we're checking that off. We're checking that box every week. If you did that, I feel like, as, especially in school, and if it was on a daily or weekly basis, like you said, really? I feel like you'd really probably be able to get to the root of so many other things. I, I mean, from like child abuse to other yeah. situations, hunger at home, because you'd see that on, you know, if they're reporting accurately. Mm-hmm. And I think the stress that they're suffering. About these tools that you're taking online, you're taking them from the privacy of your own home. And, and the data shows that the responses you get are, are far more true to form than not because of the location you're able to take them. Um, I, I think there's a huge opportunity. You know, I would love to embrace uh, with school districts all over the country to think about how we could do this at scale. 
Are you uh, seeing any success there, James? Are you seeing any school districts that have been able to do it well? You know, you know, at Mindul, there are several school districts that we are a working with or be in discussions with to, to deploy this kind of a resource. Um, we have a suicide prevention program, which is geared toward teens and adolescents, uh, which is showing great promise. Um, I, I think the whole opportunity with the, the, the children, quite frankly, is to demystify it as we've begun to do and make it easy for them to access and, and give them a safe space to have a conversation. Um, you know, I, I look around you know, our friends in our town and I've seen a very definite pivot in, in the engagement, if you will, of the youth in the town just because of COVID and the isolation that they've all been struggling with. It's no fault of their own. You know, we are by design social, social animals, if you will. And when we can't do that, you know, this is great. You know, FaceTime has saved a lot of um, relationships with parents and you know, siblings and grandparents, uh, but it only gets us about this far. So what are the solutions then, James, uh, the, the things, the typical things you've actually described are quite a few solutions already, but, you know, at the system level, at the policy level, uh, at the school level. Uh, but if you could speak to our uh, average viewer who's sitting at home thinking, okay, maybe I have a behavioral issue, maybe I don't, uh, maybe I don't know. Uh, do you have any tips? The answers are, are not simple, but they are, right? And the, the simple answer is you've got to be your own advocate. You've got to be your own voice in, in the healthcare continuum. You know, it's that way on the medical side of the house. It's the same on the psychiatric side of the house, the behavioral side of the house. Everybody has challenges at one point or other in their lives. And you may not recognize you have the challenge. Others in your care continuum or your, your orbit, if you will, or your pod, as we call them today, may recognize that you're struggling. I would say if you get feedback, take it at face value. Mm -hmm. You know, you've done the test. Uh, right, Stephanie, you've done the test. You understand the ease of that test. I would urge everybody to go up and, and seek out. It doesn't have to be the Mindula tool. It can be a tool that's out there. Um, take the test, see what it tells you. And if it tells you something you weren't anticipating, that's okay. It really is okay. We all have bad dates. Um, and, but then you've got to reach out to your doc. You know, if you are lucky to have a therapist or a psychiatrist that you've been working with, and there's a change, pick up the phone and have a conversation. If you're one of the 78% of Americans who don't, that's okay too, because pick up the phone and call your PCP and say, hey, you know what? I took this test. I've got some struggles. Can you help me through it? Uh, and he or she will have a conversation with you. They will. Their level of comfort in terms of treating that may differ. The great news is that companies like MyDoula are springing up all over the country with better success, some with better success than others, right? To create this bandwidth and this groundswell of, of coverage. You know, you have to stand up for yourself and say, I need this help. Help me find out where I can get it. Um, where do people get the strength to do that? How do they, how can you encourage them if they're so deep into this or they're living by themselves during COVID and really have just like sunken into that mind space? What can you tell those types of people? What's their first step to try to move into a better spot? You've got to lean on your network, right? You've got, everybody's got, and I, you know, I'm approaching, you know, that midpoint of my life. I turned 50 a couple of years ago and I had this revelation that when you hit 50, there's really five people that are your, your core and they've come from, you know, your latter years of high school and your first couple of years of college. And that's what I found. And, and many of my friends have had the same conversation. It's about five people that are your, your inner circle. My recommendation is tap that inner circle. Um, I was very fortunate to spend time with one of my friends around the holidays. Um, 
and we had a very frank and open conversation and and he was very very responsive and and appreciative of that discussion and you know you got to lean in and and you got to make it personal and you got to ask for help um you just got to open your mouth and that is a very big first step but it has to be the first step what wonderful advice that's great what is what do you say to people who think okay mental health is so important right now and it's because of COVID, but once COVID goes away and everybody has the vaccine, then it's gonna be okay and we're all gonna go back to whatever it was. What do you say to those people and why this remains an important thing that should have a lot of funding and focus? Well, I think if we go back to you know prior pandemics, like the Spanish flu and others, and this goes back a very long time, the needs of the, the population from a behavioral health perspective cascaded four to five years beyond the, the end of the pandemic. And I use air quotes a lot here in my office, especially when I'm talking to myself, right? Um, the, the issue is not going away. Just because COVID is gone doesn't mean magically your gig workers have a job back, right? Doesn't mean that magically full employment happens overnight. The numbers we talked about earlier is it's a four-year runway to full employment, right? That means it's four years of food insecurity four years of added stress around income and paying my bills. It's four years of increased anxiety and increased depression and an opportunity to, to make some poor choices, mm -hmm. right? And those poor choices don't have to be catastrophic or epic. It can be small bad choices that accumulate over time that take you to a very dark place, right? So you really need to pay attention to the next step and, and it's an evolutionary step in this, the solving of COVID. It's the behavioral health needs of the population. Mm -hmm. Right. We've seen this happen in, in uh, you know, war zones where we go in and, and defeat the bad guy and then leave and don't spend the time and energy to rebuild the country and reeducate the populations and rebuild that infrastructure allows bad things to take hold and bad things to come out of those same environments. We can't do the same thing here. Well, and, and James, as you were saying earlier, it's even prior to COVID, it's, uh, it's hard to recall that now, maybe 10 months into the crisis. And we think, uh, obviously, a lot of this is becoming amplified because of COVID. But everything we're talking about has been present and growing uh, as, a, as a national uh, urgency and emergency for decades, right? So that's the, yeah. not getting put back in the bottle. I mean, that's a significant public health issue that has to be addressed, COVID or no COVID. Well, yeah, if you think back pre-COVID, and we go back 20, 30 years at this point, maybe a little bit longer, they closed the state psychiatric hospitals, right? They pushed all of those chronically mentally ill patients out into the community. And I'm not suggesting that the, the, the state hospitals in all instances were well run or they were a great place to be. I'm saying it gave the chronically mentally ill who, who really needed institutionalization a safe place to call home, mm -hmm. right? And what we did by closing those and I'm sure they had good reasons at the time, it predates most of us on the phone call, it pushed those folks in the community, which at the time thought it was a better place for them to try to get some semblance of, of what we would call normalcy. But that pushed that need into the ED, right? So now your EDs are overloaded. There's no bed space from an acute care perspective. Anybody who is now, as we call it, the, the walking wounded, the walking well, who have these under, under managed behavioral health needs like depression and anxiety, when they reached a cri a cr acute critical phase of their life, they struggled to find a bed. They struggled to find a bed because we did have not made it a priority to get more behavioral health beds into our community hospitals, into our academic medical centers, because it's usually, a, unfortunately, a financial loss leader, right? There's not a lot of money in treating behavioral health needs. 
There's a lot of money to be saved, right? And there's a lot of money opportunity on the table from a savings perspective. But you know, you don't see them building new wings to treat behavioral health like they do heart centers, right? Or, or you know, diabetes treatment centers. Um, so I think we have to prioritize the needs of the population, the health and wellness of the population, the behavioral health needs of the population at the same level we're funding things like you know, heart failure, cancer centers, and others. How do you switch that and make people understand the true value of focusing on this? Because like you said, it's not uh, not something that you think of immediately, but if you put these people out on the street decades ago and they don't have anywhere safe to go now, then it seems like if you focus on behavioral health and start to catch these problems or get people into the right situations that they need to be, if they do need those resources, you could even start to solve or improve things like homelessness, drug use, all these other things that would save tons of money system-wide across the spectrum. Absolutely. And, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll reference, you know, in, in my work on the medical side of the equation with large health systems and, and integrated delivery groups and primary care doctors, we're focused on the chronic conditions, you know, diabetes, heart failure, hypertension. We focus our energies on those patients who are spending the most because we could save money and meet our clinical targets. The challenge was we didn't spend any money to get ahead of the bus, as I like to say, right? Those patients who were pre-disease or early in their disease state who didn't yet have that spend were often left off the equation. The nice thing about this collaborative care approach and this community-focused behavioral health assessment, if you will, allows us to broadly attach the population and address the population's needs and get it into the engagement level prior to them having acute level of events. Mm -hmm. So if we can stop them having an acute episode, not only do we improve their quality of life, right? And improve their outlook and their wellness factor, but we also save those resources for the patients who really have those acute needs, who can't wait 14 weeks for it to be seen, who can't wait 10 days, 15 days for an acute care bed, right? It really allows us to right size the population and point the right tools to the right patients at the right time. Mm-hmm. Well, somehow the system has to get ahead of the curve is how you're describing it very vividly. And the individuals have a big role to play in that. We as consumers can help uh, getting ahead of the curve by doing some of the things you're talking about. Take a self-assessment, uh, reach out to our networks, make sure we're doing whatever we can to have our own wellness uh, routines. Yeah, I mean, think, think about this. This is a pretty scary, uh, scary significant um, I think it's every 13 minutes, somebody in the United States dies of suicide. Think about that for a second. Like that's a, that's. It's been how many people in the time that we've been talking. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's been a 60% increase in the need, psychiatric needs of patients hitting the ED. You know, 13% of people in the United States receive minimally appropriate care for a behavioral health diagnosis, right? So these numbers are real. Right. If you ask primary care doctors, you know, the data shows that about less than 20% of those primary care docs feel very good or very prepared about being able to diagnose a behavioral health need. Right. So there's a lot of opportunity here for us to rethink this continuum, um, ask good questions, be our own advocate, take these self-assessment tools. Real. They're real. Use them. We've talked a lot about uh, our network, our providers, but we haven't said anything about what do parents do? How do parents cope? You're a dad. 
How do you handle this with your own children, knowing everything that you do and having that benefit? How do you help them through all these difficult times? And what would you tell other parents? I'm a parent of a five-year-old, a poor of has teenagers. Mm-hmm. What do we do? You know, I think, I, think it's, uh, I think it's been fantastic, to be honest with you, being stuck at home for the last year and being forced to be present with everybody. You know, I used to travel a lot for work. I was gone three or four days a week. Um, I can't wait to travel again. Right. I'm a social beast like everybody else, but, you know, helping my kids understand that we're all human. Right. I have good days and bad days. If I if if I'm in my office with the door closed by eight o'clock in the morning, they know something's going on. Right. So helping them understand that everybody's human. It's okay to have a bad day. And it's more importantly, it's okay to ask for help. Mm. Right. You know, I used to do, uh, you know, two minute check ins with the kids every night before they went to bed, just reflecting on their day. You know, nobody wants to do that anymore. But, you know, you try to do that in the car with them, right? How are you doing? Like, what, you know, how was school today? You're like, what, what, did, what did you do? How are you feeling? Um, and then allowing them a safe space. It's really the car for us, I think, at this point. Would you tell other parents who might think that that, you know, those two minutes might seem insignificant, that those two minutes actually are really important and how that opens things up? It was, A, the most impactful moment of my day. So when I was traveling a lot, I made sure those two minutes happened every night I was home. Um, and it, the two minutes, it was, you know, 10 minutes, a half hour, whatever, reading the book. Um, and I think if you talk to my kids, it was a really important time for them as well, because it gave them, they knew they had that time of the day when it was just them, he, my two boys, each of them had their time with me and it was, could be quick, good night. It could be stressful. It could be anything. Right. And, uh, it, it, it's one of those moments I look back on with great fondness and I'm sure they will as well. What would your ideal behavioral health world look like? If we could make massive change within five years, what is ideal? How, what do you think is the solution? It's about screening. It's about surveillance. It's about broadband testing, right? Then now the public is very used to hearing about testing and the need for testing and the need for the data to tell the story. None of this, if we don't test it, it doesn't exist. Crap that's been going on for the last four years. Real true science matters and real true testing and real true outcomes matter, right? So let's not be afraid of testing all the students in the school district once a month, once a week, right? Once a quarter, let's start off easy and make it a quarterly test and we'll do you know, surveillance testing on a quarterly basis. You know, nursing homes, great tool, great location. They're not going anywhere, they're dying for engagement, right? What if we tagged our local high schools with our local senior centers and had opportunities to share and connect and create synergies between the two post COVID, right? I just think it's time for us to think more broadly and get out of this. If I need mental health services, I need to go someplace. No, we can bring the mental health services to you. And it may not be in the traditional sense that you're used to, right? I think we have to get innovative, right? I think the collaborative care approach, how do we spread a very narrow number of psychiatrists broadly across a whole network of need, right? We've gotta be using social workers. We've gotta be using the primary care network. We gotta be using nurse practitioners. We've got to be rethinking the delivery model. Um, and, and needing a bed is okay, but you shouldn't have to get to the place where you need a bed. You should have the capacity to have a conversation and, and get some of your needs met in the community a lot quicker. James, you've described so many aspects of the model, and yet there's a really simple message and a very inspiring vision, which is uh, let's just spread the testing, make sure people have access and are getting assessed. So I really appreciate that vision. 
you bet. Happy to happy to help. Happy to share. Happy to think. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you being on the show and sharing your thoughts. I think you have really brilliant ideas and I'm excited to watch you implement them because it sounds like a great world. So thank you for being on and thank you all for joining us today. We'll talk to you thank soon. You. Bye. What a wonderful opportunity.